A monk asked Zhao Zhou, Does a dog have Buddha nature or not? Zhao Zhou said, Wu. Hello and welcome to a new type of episode of Bright on Buddhism called the Koan series. In the Koan series, we will read and discuss famous koans used by real Buddhist monks from such sources as the Blue Cliff Record, the Gateless Gate, the Treasury of the True Dharma Eye, and many others. Full disclosure, this is not how many koans are used or ought to be used in Buddhist practice, but I'm here to give some extra scholarly context and meaning to some of these koans so that you might see them in a new light and gain some new or deeper meaning from them than you might have had before. I hope you enjoy. Today's koan is known in English by the question that it poses, does a dog have Buddha nature? If you remember from our previous episode on koans, this is one of the first koans which will be given to a practitioner to meditate on when they join a monastery and begin their training. For more details on that process, I will direct you to Bright on Buddhism episode 32, What are Koans? And for more information on Zen Buddhism, I will direct you to Bright on Buddhism episode 10, What is Zen? I will include the links in today's show notes. In short, koans are phrases and questions that are a part of Zen or Chan Buddhist meditative practice. They are often seemingly meaningless or nonsensical phrases or even unanswerable questions given to a practitioner by a master to meditate on. The practitioner commonly then strives to observe the phrase or to meditate on a particular part of their unusual phrase or question until they've reached some higher point of understanding or awakening than they had before. This practice is thought to help a practitioner come to a deep and sudden understanding or awakening, which is known as satori in Japanese. Think of it like an aha moment, but on steroids. In order to begin discussing how we might understand this koan, it is important to establish a couple of background concepts that are at work in it. As I said, koans are not meant to be understood intellectually, but as a scholar, I would like to offer up the deeper meanings and the contexts that are at play in a given koan so that they are more widely understandable and richly meaningful. The three concepts at play in this koan, as I understand it, that I would like to offer up my expertise on are the concept of Buddha nature, the place of animals in Buddhism, and the concept of Wu, which is the negative prefix, like non in English. Let's start with Buddha nature. Buddha nature is a very popular doctrine in Mahayana Buddhism with some fascinating roots in the texts. The concept takes on several meanings over time that I would like to lay out here. The earliest iteration of this concept comes from the Tathagatagarbha Sutras. These are a group of Mahayana Sutras which teach about the idea of Tathagatagarbha. Tathagatagarbha is the Sanskrit word which we often translate as Buddha nature, but has a much richer and complex meaning that should be discussed. First, Tathagata, the first part of the word, is one of the titles in Sanskrit for the Buddha, which means thus become one or thus gone one. It's a little weird that we have both come and gone in different translations and meanings of the word, but there's actually a reason why we see that. It's a title that specifically refers to the present state of the Buddha, known as his tatata, and his either becoming or passing away. If we read it as his passing away, it's referring to how he is the one who has exited samsara and achieved nirvana without any remainder. If we look at it as his becoming, it is referring to his becoming in samsara to save sentient beings. Either way, it refers to the enlightenment of the Buddha. Garbha is a suffix that affords the meaning of containing the tathagata, or the state of being the womb of the tathagata. 
This has also been read to mean the seed, the matrix, the essence, or the embryo of the Tathagata. The Tathagatagarbha Sutras teach us that every sentient being is imbued with this womb of the Buddha. By nature of having this essence or this seed of Buddhahood in us, we are able to reach enlightenment in the future, and thus enlightenment becomes possible for all sentient beings. The way that this is explained is very similar to how we've explained the possibility of enlightenment before. We've often asked on this show, is it possible for somebody to describe the taste of chocolate to you and have you understand it correctly if you have never tasted chocolate before? The only way to fully understand the taste of chocolate is to taste chocolate. The same question is applied to enlightenment. If we have never ever been enlightened before, how do we know what we are reaching for? How can it be explained to us in any sort of meaningful way by the Buddha or anyone else? And how can it be possible to experience it if we don't have any sort of reference to go back to? The answer lies in this Tathagatagarbha. This essence of the Buddha that resides in all of us is thought of as a seed which can possibly develop into Buddhahood in the future. It is the memory of the taste of chocolate. This is how it's explained in its earlier iterations, but it evolves over time, as all Buddhist doctrines do. Later, this idea that it can develop into Buddhahood transforms into the idea that it absolutely will develop into Buddhahood. This is the unspoken prophecy of the Lotus Sutra. We will read and discuss those chapters in the future, but in short, at one point in the text, the Lotus Sutra turns toward the reader, begins using the I pronoun to address itself and the you pronoun to refer to the reader, and it prophesizes the reader's future Buddhahood. No doubt that will be a very interesting sutra episode. This iteration of the thought of Buddha nature is related to an eschatological question, or a question about ultimate endings. This question is, what is the ultimate fate of all sentient beings? Do they all eventually become enlightened? Do none of them? Do some of them? Etc. Is awakening the singular direction of the universe? Or are there multiple directions? If there are multiple directions, how ought we understand them in the context of Buddhist doctrine? The Lotus Sutra answers this by saying, there is only one direction, and that is Buddhahood. And you will get there as long as you believe the Lotus Sutra, which says that there is one direction, and that is Buddhahood. And you will get there as long as you believe the Lotus Sutra, which says that there is one direction. You see where we've ended up. The next iteration of this idea comes in the Mahaparinirvana Sutra, the Sutra of the Great Passing Away and Final Nirvana of Shakyamuni Buddha. In this case, we're referring to the Mahayana one, which we have not read and discussed quite yet. In this sutra, which, just like its older counterpart, is trying to solve the problem of how sentient beings become enlightened once the Buddha is gone from this world, it is said that Tathagatagarbha is the true nature of sentient beings, and it is through practice and meditation and study that we realize that nature and become it. If you want to be a Buddha, all you have to do is be a Buddha, because you already are a Buddha, being a Buddha, you just don't necessarily know it yet. It seems that through simply doing what Buddhas do, you can be one and in fact realize your true nature. One other iteration of this thought process I would like to discuss before moving on is the evolution of Buddha nature into original enlightenment. As I said before, this Buddha nature is the idea that we have the potential within us to become Buddhas, and that it takes the form of what you might call a piece of perfection. Isn't it quite an optimistic thought to think that all sentient beings have a piece of perfection in them? Original enlightenment is the next level of that, which argues that we have more than just a piece of perfection, we actually have achieved total perfection in the past and have simply lost it. We have forgotten it, we have fallen back from it, and we have to practice and make it real again in our lives to get back to it. This idea has a long history that we won't get into here, but it's worth noting. 
In this doctrine, it is argued that we have been enlightened in the past, but we have forgotten it, slid back from it, or have become yet again imperfect due to our karma or our ignorance. Thus, the way back is simply to realize our Buddha nature, because we have it and we can remember it and make it real again if we try hard enough. These are the ideas that are at play in this question, does a dog have Buddha nature? Does that dog have the potential to become a Buddha? And if so, how? Now let's discuss animals in Buddhism to see if they really do have Buddha nature or not. In the past, we have talked about the six or ten realms doctrines in Buddhism. If you'd like to brush up on that, I'll direct you to the Bright on Buddhism episode 16, How Does Buddhism Deal with Death? Episode 22, What are the Realms of Samsara? And episode 35, What is Buddhist Cosmology? I'll include links to those in the show notes. In any case, no matter how you cut it, there is the potential in Buddhism to be reborn as an animal when you die. This is a better situation than being reborn as a hungry ghost or a demon, but it's not as good as being reborn as a Buddha, a Bodhisattva, a Pratyeka Buddha, an Arhat, a Deva, an Asura, or a human. The realm of animals is marked by animality and the violence and savagery of nature, and is therefore a worse karmic lot than being a human or anything above that. Think of predator-prey relationships. Think of disease and habitat destruction. Think of natural disasters. Think of all the senseless death and violence that occurs in the animal kingdom. That is what that realm is reserved for. However, the realm of the animals is the lowest realm which has members that the everyday person can actually see with the naked, unenlightened eye. We cannot see hungry ghosts or hell dwellers, even if they are around us. Moreover, I would rather have a cat as a pet than a demon or a hungry ghost. In that regard, though animals are in a lower realm than humans, it is not as bad as it could be. Hungry ghosts are universally doomed to karmic punishment. Their extreme passionate desires during their lives as humans, or as other creatures, have led them to be deemed hungry, and they are punished with the inability to fulfill their desires. They are thirsty, but if they drink water, it feels like fire, etc. Even worse, demons and hell dwellers are being punished for some grave and unforgivable sin which they exacted upon another during their lifetime, and their lot is even worse than that of the hungry ghosts. That being the case, some animals do actually have it pretty good. Wouldn't it be amazing to be one of Oprah Winfrey's golden retrievers? I certainly think so. Keep that in mind as we discuss this realm of animals, because pets are included in that realm. So knowing that, and knowing a little bit about Buddha nature, we can start to make some progress on the question. According to many iterations of the doctrine of Buddha nature, it is something that is true for all sentient beings, and dogs are sentient beings. Therefore, dogs have Buddha nature, right? Well, not necessarily. Remember that knowledge and memory and karma are all at work here. An important component to have Buddha nature, as we have discussed, is believing that you have Buddha nature. It is a leap of faith because, according to the doctrine, until you have meditated and practiced and begun to remember your past lives, you do not actually remember what enlightenment tastes like. You have to believe and have faith that you have that nature and that potentiality. Until you have decided to realize your piece of perfection and crystallize complete perfection around it, your piece of perfection is paved over by suffering and ignorance. So the question then becomes, do dogs know that they have Buddha nature? Do they have faith that they have a piece of perfection, a memory of total enlightenment, or a piece of the Buddha within them from which they can start the path of enlightenment? I ask these questions because they're a part of the Buddha nature conversation in Mahayana Buddhism in East Asia. And as you can see, you run into some incredibly difficult doctrinal roadblocks if you think about them too hard. If a dog does not and cannot know of its own potential for enlightenment, 
then how can it ever accrue any better karma through good deeds and achieve rebirth as a human, or at least as a sentient being with knowledge of its own potential for Buddhahood? With no knowledge of the Dharma, what are animals, hungry ghosts, and demons to do to improve their lot? It might seem like there's nothing they can do. It might seem like they are completely doomed to just continue to fall lower and lower and lower until they're all in hell. Well, actually, there's two possible answers to this question of what can be done. One of them is karma, and one of them relates to this issue of Wu, which we'll get to in a minute. The karma answer is this. Karma is simple reflexivity of the universe. It does not need knowledge and awakening to work in the way it does. If a dog does a good deed, even if it does not know what a deed is, much less what moral good is, then it will accrue good karma. However, as you can imagine, in the absence of an ontological and theological mindset, any act of good will be random. It'll be completely by chance. That puts animals and the lower realms at a severe disadvantage. They can only do good randomly, in most cases. And in the realms of hungry ghosts and demons, the opportunities to do good are extremely miserably few. But, so what if a dog can do good? How does that relate to this answer, woo? Well, let's talk about the final point I wanted to bring up about this koan, which is the monk Zhao Zhou's answers to the question, woo. As I have mentioned, Wu is the Chinese prefix for negation, like non in English. It's pronounced mu in Japanese, and it works the same as English non or English a or something like that. Muga in Japanese is non-self. Mujo is impermanence or non-permanence, etc. Because of this meaning of negation in the word, many scholars have often thought that Zhao Zhou was responding, no, dogs do not have Buddha nature. This is one interpretation, and it's a valid one, but I would like to offer up some more interpretations based on the meaning and context of this word Wu. Wu is deeply related to the doctrine of emptiness, or sunyata, in Buddhism. For more on emptiness, I will direct you to Bright on Buddhism episode 33, What is Emptiness? In short, when something is passed through the perspective of emptiness, or the doctrine of emptiness, it becomes non-X. When permanence is understood as being empty, it is non-permanence. When self is understood as empty, it is non-self. When duality is understood as empty, it is non-duality. When attachment is understood as empty, it is non-attachment. As we have discussed before, emptiness does not hold that nothing exists at all, nor does it hold that there is no coherence or consistency or continuity in this world. Instead, it simply recognizes that those things that we see are patterns of our perceptions of real things and not properties of reality itself, and should not be maximized to be thought of as being real things that exist in an unchanging and ultimate way. This is really confusing, but to put it simply, emptiness does not teach that nothing exists at all, and it doesn't teach that everything exists. There is a screen in front of my face, and a chair under me, and a floor under that. Those things are actually there. However, emptiness also does not teach that everything exists permanently, in a substantial and eminent way. Instead, it teaches the middle way. That things are observable, but that they arise in reality, and will eventually change, or cease, or something like that. In the emptiness episode, we use the formula impermanence plus non-self equals emptiness. That's not the perfect way to look at it, but it helps us understand the property or characteristic of emptiness. However, we should qualify some of what we've said. Things do not necessarily arise in reality in the sense that they are nothing and then become something and then turn back into nothing again. They exist in relative continuity and they exist due to causes and conditions, 
and do not have any substantial unchanging existence, and therefore, what is actually happening is called non-arising. There is that prefix non again, which is slowly bringing us back around to this question of Wu. As emptiness discourse expands and becomes ever more refined in Mahayana Buddhism, it starts to be applied to the doctrines themselves. For example, in the Heart Sutra, which we've read and discussed, the Four Noble Truths, Awakening, Enlightenment, the Buddha, and even Buddha Nature come to be regarded as empty. That means if we apply our process from before, they become the non-Four Noble Truths, non-Awakening, non-Enlightenment, non-Buddha, and non-Buddha Nature. This emptiness discourse is starting to appear to be the ultimate Dharma. It's starting to seem like impermanence, non-self, non-duality, desire, suffering, and awakening are all sprouting forth from this emptiness concept. And that's because it is. This is one of, if not the most important and widespread doctrinal discourse in all of Mahayana Buddhism. And that makes it the hardest to read about and to understand because it exists in such a rich textual tradition and it's such a complicated and contentious sphere of debate. Nevertheless, let us turn back to the koan at hand. If we interpret Zhao Zhou as saying no, dogs do not have Buddha nature, then that could work according to this doctrine of emptiness. No, dogs do not have Buddha nature because no one has Buddha nature. It is not a thing that you can possess. Non-self, which comes out of emptiness, holds that you do not have a permanent and unchanging self, so therefore there is nobody there to possess Buddha nature. According to emptiness, there is no thing in reality that exists in a substantial and unchanging way. Therefore, there is no way to possess Buddha nature, because that would require it to be a thing. That sort of owner and property relationship requires both a duality between self and Buddha nature, which is an incorrect view, it requires a delusion of self, which is an incorrect view, and it requires the delusion of the unchanging existence of something, which is also an incorrect view. It implies that somebody can have Buddha nature and then lose it, give it, take it, steal it, etc. These things are all regarded as incorrect, ignorant, and deluded views in Buddhism. Therefore, as in all things in Buddhism, when we ask, does a dog have Buddha nature? The answer is yes and no and kind of. If we have already said that all sentient beings are imbued with Buddha nature, then how does this make sense saying no one has Buddha nature? Well, it's because of the limitations of language. According to Buddhist doctrine, which I remind you is presented only in the format of language to people like us, language is always being criticized as being dualistic and as being inherently deluded in nature. And it is the goal and the purpose of our practice to transcend this duality and come to a greater understanding and empty out language so that we can have access to the true Dharma, which is not something that can ever be adequately, fully, completely described, just like the taste of chocolate. That being the case, this idea that dogs don't have Buddha nature because nobody has Buddha nature is a realization of Buddha nature itself. Whenever you realize that dogs don't have Buddha nature because nobody has Buddha nature, because nobody has a self that can possess a thing called Buddha nature, then you are realizing your own Buddha nature by transcending the duality of language and accessing the truth of emptiness. It seems very complicated and confusing, but this is why a lot of people spend a lot of time meditating on it and trying to understand it in some deeper way. There's one final interpretation of this koan that I want to give you that was given to me by my teacher at the university. Remember that although an overly intellectualized understanding of koans is perfect for scholars of Buddhism like me, they are the exact opposite way that they ought to be understood and used in vivo, as it were. This way of understanding it that I'm about to present might help you get started down a much better path of understanding in that regard. Here it is. When my teacher was teaching us about this koan, 
he started out by reading it to us just like this, word for word. A monk asked Zhao Zhou, does a dog have Buddha nature or not? Zhao Zhou said, Wu. This has been our discussion of the Does a Dog Have Buddha Nature koan. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. My name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions and the voice of Hearer. And I'm Docs, editor, question asker, and voice of Hermit. And this has been Bright on Buddhism. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, or if you have a question you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please consider leaving a comment or review, subscribing, or joining us on social media. Email us at bright.on.buddhism at gmail.com. Tweet us at brightbuddhism. And join us on our Discord server, The Hidden Sangha, link in description. As always, citations and resources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Thank you. See you next time. Thank you very much.